Welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. This week we are continuing our Easter series titled The Plot. One of the lessons we learn from the Easter story is that you can do everything right and still end up on a cross. Though Jesus never wronged anyone, he faced opposition from all those he came to save. Yet Jesus responded with remarkable love, patience, and forgiveness. What lessons can we learn from his example? Listen as Pastor Tim Herring continues the plot. We hope that this talk encourages you and inspires you as you grow in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning. Uh, Every once in a while I do a talk or a message or a sermon, whatever you want to call it, but I realize that where I'm going to be landing with this talk is a place that many of you are going to struggle with where I'm going to land with it. Just every once in a while I think, you know, I'm going to do this talk and everyone's going to be mad at me. And I think there'll be a couple reasons why. Number one is that what I'm going to talk about here today is so counter to our culture. And we're going to talk about, in a general sense, the subject of authorities in our lives, and I'll get more specific as we go along, but oftentimes the society has a perspective about about something, or we have a perspective, but it's different than what's taught in the pages of the Bible, and at a time like that, you have to wrestle with which is right. Now, I personally have concluded that when I have an opinion about something, but the Bible has a different opinion, it is right, and I am wrong. And I've actually prayed that many times to God because if there's an issue I'm struggling with and I'm thinking, for example, why is this particular thing wrong? Or why did you do this particular thing? And I've had to just acknowledge, God, you are God. And I am not. But the other problem is that although we're going to look at some general principles related to today's talk, you have faced individual situations that might have some different answers or at least will require some clarity when we get down to it. So um, we're continuing our series, though, titled The Plot, and we've been looking at the mistreatment and, and the different ways in which Jesus was opposed during that week leading up to the cross. And so just about everyone in his world opposed Jesus. For example, the religious leaders, honestly, they should have been the ones that were leading the way for Jesus' coronation as the rightful heir to the throne of King David, but, but that's not what they did. They were successful in having him crucified instead. Think of the example of his friend Judas who betrayed Jesus for some money, just for some money. And Jesus said about Judas that it would have been better if that guy had never even been born. And then we talked about the disciples, and these were ones that you know, were with Jesus for three years And they had all pledged their loyalty, but then when push came to shove, they all fled for their lives. And the problem with that is that in a very real sense, Jesus was at that moment at the greatest need in his life in terms of having his friends with him. He needed support just then, and they all abandoned him. But I have to admit when I talk about that one, that if I were one of the disciples, I probably would have done the same thing. But today I want to talk about the authorities that Jesus stood before. You know, there's the governmental or civil authorities before whom Jesus stood. He also stood before religious authorities, and in a sense, he endured like four trials. I mean, he stood before four different individuals or groups of people, and he was mistreated all along the way. But his response is really interesting, 
And it raises the question, how are we supposed to respond to those who are in authority over us when, when they're corrupt, when they're wrong, when they're power-hungry, when maybe they're incompetent, when they're evil? And Jesus' response in these four occasions was surprisingly respectful. It was like he, he recognized their authority, and yet he didn't cave. I love the fact that he was just strong before them. And he didn't, he didn't cave in terms of his position, but there was still a certain amount of respect there. Now, I think this is hard in our culture today. Uh, for example, just in the political realm, I'm positive that just about 100% of us in this room, at least within the last 10 to 12 years, if you take that whole time span, all of us have been disappointed with certain ones that were elected to positions of power, depending on which side you're on. All of us have faced this. We face, though, other types of authorities, like a boss at work who mistreated us, and we're wondering, what do we do about that? Maybe it's, it's administrators at the school where your kids attend. It could even be church leaders. More and more, I see these articles about church leaders who are, honestly, they're, they're wicked or dishonest or whatever else. And these things are coming to the surface to the point, it is to the point where a lot of people have concluded that you can't, you just don't have to respect any authorities, any, anyone at all. I mean, you see the bumper sticker that says, question authority. Uh, in one sense, that's an okay position. I think we should be questioning those in authority, and, and Jesus did that. We'll see in a minute, but I don't like the, maybe the spirit or the heart behind the statement, which is suggesting, you know, question authorities because they're all untrustworthy, if that's the perspective behind it. I'd say that's not, a, that's not what God's Word teaches because the bottom line is that God is a God of, of order and He's the one who, as we'll see in a minute, He's the one who established the authorities that are. But then again raises the question, what do, what do we learn? You know, from Jesus' example, how did He respond when He was mistreated? Why did He respond the way He did? And what gave Him the patience actually you know, to even stand there silently and put up with it all. I mean, this was the Son of God and God the Son. And yet the way he responded was very unique. So we're going to look at these four, well, I'll call them scene one, two, three, and four. Let's talk about the context for the first scene. Jesus had just been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. I talked about that last week. His hands were bound, and he was brought before a guy named Annas, who was a high priest. Now, I think it's important to realize that this guy was a high priest. He was not the high priest. And biblically, there was only supposed to be one, you know, a descendant of Aaron. Uh, but this guy was the previous high priest when Jesus was around. And this guy's son-in-law was the current high priest. So this guy, Annas, had a lot of influence. I mean, people still viewed him in this position of authority, although technically he didn't have much authority, but people viewed him that way. And this is scene one, so I'll call it scene one, Jesus before Annas, and we're going to begin reading in verse 19 of John 18, where we read the high priest, Annas, again, questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. I've spoke openly to the world, Jesus answered him. I've always taught in the synagogue and in the temple complex where all the Jews congregate, and I haven't spoken anything in secret. 
And let me stop for a moment and just make the point that when Jesus said, I haven't spoken anything in secret, he's not saying that I've had no private conversations with my disciples or other people, you know, over here. What he's saying here is that my public message has always been the same as my private message. He had come here to establish the kingdom of heaven. And he said, what I'm, what I'm doing out here in public is the same I'm doing back here. I'm not, I'm not plotting this thing back with my disciples, you know, some kind of a, a coup or a takeover or whatever. No, everything I've said, you know, all of the things I'm, I'm speaking about, they're all out there. You know, people have heard me. And then in verse 21, we read, why do you question me, Jesus asks. Question those who heard what I told them. Look. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the temple police standing by slapped Jesus, saying, Is this the way you answer the high priest? If I have spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, Give evidence about the wrong, but if rightly, why do you hit me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. In other words, he sent him to the other high priest. Now, Let me mention a few things about just this first interaction here. Jesus, again, I think he was in complete control. In fact, in every incident, I see Jesus standing there calmly, and I see that he's in control of the situation here. Now, a casual reading of this would give you the impression that Jesus was disrespectful to Annas. Because after all, when Jesus said what he did, he was slapped in the face. And it's a word that means an open-hand slap, Every bit as insulting back then as it is today to slap someone in the face. And so Jesus said something, and he was slapped in the face for it. And so at least that temple police officer thought that he had wronged Annas, but that is not what was happening here. I don't believe that Jesus was being disrespectful at all. He was just bringing to the attention Annas, to Annas, and anyone gathered there that this whole thing was a sham. That's what he was doing. He, he was trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself, which you're not, it was not supposed to work that way. And so he says, well, listen, I mean, you know, everything I've said, I've done out in public. Where, where are the witnesses? I don't, you know, Annas didn't have any witnesses there. The, the whole thing was a sham. And so what, what's Annas doing? He's fishing. He's trying to get Jesus to say something so he doesn't have to do the work. Well, that's not justice. Now, I admit that it's possible that Jesus' response was more disrespectful than it feels. And I would say that only because Annas, again, was not the real high priest, so it's possible Jesus was kind of confronting that issue as well. But mostly, he was just saying, this is injustice. I think most of us would agree that true justice would involve a clear crime being committed. So you know what the crime is, it's real clear. It would involve some witnesses who saw it with their own eyes, who would have the ability to testify about what they saw, and then all this evidence would come out in a trial. That would be justice. Justice is not, you've decided ahead of time somebody is guilty of something, but you're not sure yet what it is. You try to figure out, you know, what what he might have done wrong, and and you don't have witnesses, so you try to get him to speak up, and he's not saying anything, and so you're just standing there. Nothing's happening. It wasn't, this wasn't right. A scholar by the name of E.A. Blum describes the slap Jesus received, plus the problem with this first trial, if we can call it that, in this way, one of Annas' assistants 
did not like Jesus' answer, so he struck him in the face. The preliminary hearing had several illegalities, and this one was one of them. It was improper to try to induce self-accusation, and it was wrong to hit an unconvicted person. And, and, and so Jesus is just pointing that out. I'm not going to do your fishing for you. I'm not going to... Whatever. And, and the whole trial, even the time of day, by the way, was illegal. So this whole situation wasn't right, and that's, that's all that Jesus was, was pouring or mentioning out here. Now, why am I emphasizing, emphasizing so much this idea that, you know, Jesus was respectful here as he is going to be with all the ones we're going to look at? Why do I emphasize that? Because we, are, we know that Jesus was without sin. And in the Old Testament, it was indeed against the Old Testament law to speak against the leader of the people. It was wrong to do that. We have an example in the book of Acts where this is illustrated. The Apostle Paul was standing before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a group of 70 high officials in Israel. They were like the supreme body, the the judicial body. And so Paul the Apostle finds himself standing before this group. And the, the high priest at the time was a guy named Ananias. And Paul made this statement. He said, I have done my best to maintain a blameless conscience before God to this very moment. And when he said that, the high priest ordered Paul to be slapped. Again, it was an open-handed slap. And let's pick up the story in verse 23 and verse 3. And by the way, I kind of like his response I, I probably shouldn't, but I kind of like, like, I feel like saying, go, Paul, you know? But in verse 23, it says, then Paul said to him, to Ananias, he said, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You're sitting there judging me according to the law, and in violation of the law, you're ordering me to be struck. Like, who do you think you are to judge me? You're sitting in a, as a judge of me, but you're the one that's breaking the law, not me. That was his argument. We continue the the story in verse 4. Those standing nearby said, do you dare revile God's high priest? Now I want you to notice the change in Paul's tone at this point in verse 5. I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul, for it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He's basically apologizing. Oh, I didn't realize he was the high priest, which was true. He thought it was just some official when he found out it was the high priest. Oh, you know, see, Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight says you're not to blaspheme God, which is to speak against him, and you're not to speak against God's leaders. And in the Old Testament, especially ones who oppose Moses, learn the hard way. You don't do that. It's hard enough. It was hard enough for Moses to lead as it was. You had to have everybody speaking against him, and God was not happy. And part of the Old Testament laws, you're not allowed to do this. Now, the Old Testament law would allow you to stand up for your rights. It would have been fine to point out things that were wrong, which is exactly what Jesus did. But respect was very, very important. And I'm just suggesting Jesus showed no disrespect. But let's get back to the story. And now we come to what I'll call scene two, where Jesus is before Caiaphas. Annas' tactic didn't, uh, didn't produce anything. There were no witnesses, and Jesus wasn't saying anything, and so Annas realized, I'm getting nowhere. So I better send him to the, the real high priest, which was Caiaphas. 
Now, as Jesus stood before Caiaphas, the, the difference here was that the entire Sanhedrin now was gathered. It was a little bit later in the morning. The whole Sanhedrin was there. So 70 leaders of Israel, he's standing before this particular group. And this is really more an official poly, or a, a, a group here gathered. Now, Jesus again, he, he, he remains silent. Now, part of the reason he, he didn't answer his accusers is because he knew the scripture about himself from Isaiah 53, 7 which says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. And Jesus knew that's what he was supposed to do. I'm not going to defend myself. I'm just going to be silent here. And once again, it's creating this uh, problem. Caiaphas, unlike Annas, brought some false witnesses. They dug up some people to be a witness against Christ. And the way you had to do this in Bible times is you had to do them one at a time. You didn't gather them all in a room. You weren't allowed to do that, although maybe they did something like that. But you weren't allowed to gather them in a room so they could collaborate their story. No, you'd bring them all before the Sanhedrin. You'd interrogate them. The next one couldn't hear what had just happened. And the problem was that all these witnesses were disagreeing with each other. They're getting nowhere again. One said Jesus said this, another said Jesus said that. Nobody was agreeing, and Jesus is just standing there. And so once again, it's kind of a problem for Caiaphas. Caiaphas was aware of the fact that in a short period of time, his kangaroo court, which is what it was, and I have no idea why it's called that, but his little kangaroo court was going to be exposed. As being just, it was just... It was one of these things, you arrest the guy, but you don't even know what they're being charged for and everything else, and nobody's speaking, the evidence is wrong, and it's just wrong, the whole thing. And it was clear to every single person in that room. So Caiaphas came up with a, a different solution. Beginning in verse 62 of Matthew 22, we read, the high priest then stood up and said to him, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. Then the high priest said to him, by the living God, I place you under oath. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it, Jesus told him. That expression on the part of Jesus, by the way, is basically saying it's as you've said. And then Jesus added something. And this was, in terms of the trial, would have been viewed as the nail in the coffin. Jesus added, but I tell you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes, which, by the way, was also illegal. In the Old Testament law, the high priest, the one who had the anointing upon him, was not allowed to ever tear his garment. Even if your, your mother died, you weren't allowed to do that. This guy doesn't know his own scriptures. But he went on and said, he has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What's your decision? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and beat him. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now, what I want us to note about this is that Jesus only spoke up when he was commanded to do so. He was put under oath, you have to speak now. And so when 
when he was told that, he submitted again to the authority. It's godless as it might have been. He submitted to the authority and he spoke up. And what he said would have been regarded by everyone in the room as being blasphemy. It would have been blasphemous except it was true. What he said was true. But Jesus was identifying himself with the guy that Daniel, the prophet, wrote about in Daniel 7.13, where Daniel describes this person who is ushered in the presence of the creator of the universe, and this one who's a man is also divine, and he's going to rule forever and ever. And Jesus said, you're going to see me being ushered into the presence. And they knew, oh, you're quoting from Daniel 7, 13. And they knew exactly what he was claiming. And so they, they had it now. They said, well, you've committed blasphemy. And of course, the, the, the penalty for blasphemy was death. But Caiaphas had a problem here. Uh, the Israelites were not allowed to put anyone to death because they were under Roman rule. And one of the rules that the Romans had was you're not allowed to carry out capital punishment. You guys... You have some authority, but you're not allowed to put anyone to death. And so Caiaphas knew this. So then we come to scene three, where Jesus is being brought before Pilate. Now, Pilate was the, what was called the prefect over Judea under Tiberius, the emperor Tiberius. So he's brought before Pilate. And we pick up the story now in John 18, 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Let me pause for a moment, but this is so hypocritical. It's so ridiculous. They believe, these Jewish leaders believe that if they came under the roof of a Gentile or non-Jew, they'd be, they'd be considered unclean and they, then they couldn't eat the Passover meal. So they were so concerned about not being unclean because we got too close to a Gentile that they're they're willing to kill a guy. You know, Jesus talked about this this situation when he said, you know what you guys are like, you Pharisees? He said, you're like ones who strain at a gnat but you swallow a whole camel. You strain over these little matters of the law like, like it's the biggest thing in the world. And then you swallow this thing that should be obvious to everybody. It's horrible what you're doing. And that's what they were doing. These were the kind of leaders they were. But Peter is brought before them. And we pick up the story in verse 29 of John 18. So Pilate went outside to them. That's because he had to. And said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. In other words, he's guilty because we're saying so. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. In other words, Jesus had already prophesied ahead of time he was going to die by the hand of the Romans and it was going to be an execution. So all of this was part of God's plan. Now, after this conversation with the religious leaders, Jesus uh, or Pilate went back into his palace and he had a private conversation with Jesus. And he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, yes, I am. And he, he answered him. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And then Jesus provided evidence to that effect. He said, if, if my kingdom were of this world, my followers would have risen up 
They would have swords, and you would have had a battle on your hand. Do you see any of that going on? And when Pilate heard this, he decided he hasn't done anything. There's nothing wrong. He's talking about spiritual things, and the Jewish leaders are harping on spiritual things, and this is not his job to handle this thing. And so we read in verse 38 of John 18, Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. We also know from Scripture he was an insurrectionist and he was a, a murderer. Now, there's part of this story that John did not include in his gospel telling of it. There's an event that took place between the two times that Pilate went out to talk with these religious leaders. And that is that he sent Jesus to Herod. Because in their first conversation, when the Jewish leaders were talking with Herod, they let slip the fact that Jesus was a Galilean, which meant that Jesus was from the region of Galilee, not Judea. And Pilate saw a way out. And so then we come to scene four. But I want you to understand scene four is kind of in the middle of scene three. We pick up the story now in Luke chapter seven. And when he, Pilate, learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time, which was very convenient. When Herod saw Jesus, he was glad, for he had long desired to see him because he'd heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign or miracle done by him. So he questioned Jesus at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him and arraying him in splendid clothing. He sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day for before they had been at enmity with each other. Jesus basically, as he stood before Herod, decided not to to do a magic show. He just wasn't going to do it. And once again, we find he's being very silent. He's not answering the accusers. They're all standing there, all these religious leaders, yelling things, and he did this and he did that, and Jesus is standing there, very respectful. And we read that Jesus was mistreated by Herod, but then he was sent back with the same verdict. Herod said about Jesus, I don't see anything he's done wrong either. Pilate even acknowledges that. Both Herod and I haven't seen anything wrong with him. Now, there is one little interesting detail I find concerning Jesus and Herod, and that is that Jesus at one point in his ministry toward the end actually called Herod a fox. Uh, The religious leaders came to Jesus and said, like, you need to run for your life because Herod is after you. And Jesus responded, will you go tell that fox? It's like, wow, that's not what I would expect Jesus to say. But I think it was an accurate description. R.H. Stein writes, fox was a metaphor for deceitful craftiness then as it is now. We still talk about somebody being sly as a fox. That's what Herod was. It really did describe him perfectly. And you remember that Herod was the guy that put together his relative, a guy named John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist had been arrested by Herod, and John the Baptist looked right at Herod in the face and confronted him, and I'd say again respectfully, but he said to Herod, you were not allowed to take your brother's wife. It's called adultery. You took your brother's wife. That's wrong. And Herod's wife hated John the Baptist, and so on her birthday, as a birthday gift, she requested that John the Baptist's head be provided for her on a platter. Wonderful woman. But Jesus was aware of all this, and he was saddened by all of this, and he, he did call him a fox at some point. But what I want us to understand is that, that Jesus, before all of these, though, again, he seemed like he was in control, he was, he was calm. Now Jesus is back with Pilate again, and, and when he realized this Herod diversion didn't work, he came up with a different tactic that in, in Judaism at the time there was a... a little habit they had or a, a tradition they had at Passover that one person in prison, one Jewish person, could be set free. And, and so Herod provided, or, or Pilate provided this guy that was a murderer and really a bad individual, probably the worst he could find. And then he put forth Jesus, who was popular among the people, and his hope was that, that they would let Jesus go free, but that's obviously not what happened the religious leaders once again got involved and they stirred up the crowd, asked for Jesus, asked for Jesus, and once again, he was, he was just mistreated. The whole thing, everything that happened to him by the authorities was wrong. So let me bring this home and ask the question about just authority and how do we view it and what do we do when it's wrong and this and that. How should we view this whole subject? I want to mention three points I, I could talk about it a lot longer. But number one is that ultimately we, we have to understand that God is the one who puts people in positions of authority. That's the, number one. I, Jesus' ability to, to stand there calmly is predicated on the idea that he realized this person was put in this position of authority by God, and therefore I'm going I'm to respect that authority. Now I'll prove that, but let me read a couple verses Romans 13.1, we read, everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those exist are instituted by God. You see, our God is a God of order. And so all the way through the Bible, he's the one that established various authorities within a society, within a home, a variety of rules about how things should be governed and run. And so God's the one that establishes various authorities. Now, again, the authorities should do what's right. I'm of the opinion that if someone's in a position of authority, they're to use their authority or power or influence or resources to help the people they're leading. Biblically, that's what authorities are supposed to do. You're in this position so you can do good for the people that are looking to you. That's the way it's supposed to be. But a lot of bad apples. We recognize that that happens sometimes. But the Apostle Paul said we need to respect those or submit to the people that are in authority. Daniel said the same thing. He was speaking to Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament, and Nebuchadnezzar in his day was the greatest man alive, at least from a secular perspective, the leader of the world, basically. There had never been a ruler quite like Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel looked right at him, and he warned him because Nebuchadnezzar was getting proud, and Nebuchadnezzar was thinking, look what I have done. And Daniel set him straight in Daniel 4.32, he said, the Most High is ruler over the kingdom of men, and he gives it to anyone he wants. 
He's looking right at the guy. He says, the ruler is not you. I mean, you're here because God has allowed you to be here. Earlier, Daniel prayed in Daniel 2.21. He, God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. I think this is true all over the world, and this is where we struggle because somebody gets elected maybe in our system as a president, and you say, what? Should this person have been elected? And we think this is maybe not the most godly candidate based on our perspective or whatever. God is the one that puts leaders in place. He is the one that does it. Now, we don't always know why. Frankly, I think sometimes God gives people what they deserve. He says, you're going to... I'm not going to give you the one that would be the best for you. I'm going to give you the one that you're calling out for because that's what you deserve. I think that's what sometimes God does. But make no mistake about it, they're the ones in authority. And Jesus made this point with Pilate as he stood before him. In John 19.10, we read, So Pilate said to Jesus, You're not talking to me. Don't you know that I have the authority to release you or the authority to crucify you? Jesus said, you'd have no authority over me at all if it had not been given to you from above. Every leader, by the way, needs to take account of this thing. If you're in some position of leadership that God is is watching, God's the one that puts people in authority. He's the one that removes them as well. But he looked right at Pilate and said, you'd have no authority at all except God gave it to you. And Jesus, I'm just saying that Jesus is recognizing that. That's why he doesn't have to fight his own battle. He, he believes and understands the thing of the sovereignty of God. God's working this out. And even if the leader gets it wrong, God's able to save him if that's God's plan. And so he didn't have to fight his own battles. He recognized God could do that. Second point related to this subject is we're to be model citizens. We're called to be law-abiding. We're not to be ones who are acting contrary to the laws of the land or, or the laws of God, except... There's one occasion I see biblically to violate the laws of the land or the laws of the various authorities, and that is if they're asking you to do something that's contrary to the law of God. I could care who it is. I don't care who they are. In all the world, if I'm being asked to do something that I'm confident is against what God says for me to do, I will not do it. I'm sorry, but as as the apostles even said to the religious leaders of their day, He said, you judge for yourself whether I'm to listen to you or God, but we're going to keep preaching the gospel. Apostles have been told, you're not allowed to speak the name of Jesus. And they basically said, here's a case where two authorities are at odds, and I'm going to listen to the one that's the the ultimate authority, God. And so that's the occasion. But again, Peter said the same thing that Paul did in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 15. He said, submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out to punish those who do what is evil and to praise who do what's good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people. How? By doing good. We're not to be the ones who are arrested for causing chaos and anarchy. That's not what we're to do, rising up in those ways. Now, there are often steps we can take that can make a difference. 
but we're to be model citizens. And again, this is what Paul said in Romans 13 when he said, everyone, again, must submit to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God. Those exist are instituted by God. So then, he goes on to say, the one who resists authority is opposing God's command and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. He goes on to say, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what's good. And you'll have its approval. For government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For government is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. And you might say, well, those are nice words for Paul, but he doesn't know our leaders. (laughs) Wow. You don't know Paul's leaders. He's put to death by a guy named Nero. At least historically, they think it was Nero. This is a guy that would light his parties with Christians. He'd make a lantern out of them in his parties, burn down the city of Rome and then blamed it on the Christians. These are the kind of people. And Jesus said, and here's where the rubber meets the road, and it's a hard thing to accept. I admit it's hard to accept. But, but anarchy, total lack of control, is worse than bad leadership, <laughs> bad control. Anarchy is worse. It's one step worse. Nothing good can come out of that. And so Paul told Titus in Titus 3.1, remind the people in the church there to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey and to be ready for every good work. And notice those two ideas. Respect them, submit to them, but also be someone who does good. It keeps coming up. Now, I'm not saying, again, we don't challenge authorities sometimes. I'm not saying that sometimes we're going to have to say no to whatever they say and And often within the system, there are ways to do things. In fact, get elected. It'd be nice if we had good people that were standing in positions of authority. But realize that there's a certain way in which we value this, because if you don't value the institution, then if you get in that position, you'll find out you're fighting, you shot yourself in the foot. Because you you, you tore down all authority, and now you're in position of authority, but nobody's going to respect you either. No, God says, I want order. Last application here is that we ought to pray for leaders. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for everyone, and then he spells it out, for kings and those in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good. It pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He's saying that the peace, peace in a society, in a culture, in a group, peace allows the gospel a fertile soil to spread. But when there's not peace, it's hard for the gospel itself even to spread. Now, again, some of you might disagree with some conclusions because I don't know all your stories, but in principle, these are the right ideas. God's established authorities and we're to be respectful of those authorities and respond properly and we're to do good. And we're to be ones who are praying for our leaders as well. But I want to offer one last thought here. One day Christ is going to reign. He's going to reign forever and ever. And one interesting thing about Christ reigning that kind of highlights the problem I'm addressing here today, and that is, I believe my theology is that he's going to reign for 1,000 years, a millennial kingdom, before he reigns forever. And at the end of that 1,000-year period, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be a big rebellion of the people of the earth against Christ. It demonstrates that you could do everything right and be a godly leader, and loving, and a benevolent leader, and people will still rebel because it's within the human heart to rebel against authority. It's part of the sin nature. 
And I think we need to take that into account. But we look forward to the day when Christ is going to reign. And in the meantime, as Christians, he reigns in our hearts. We realize there's another kingdom that we're part of that's greater than the kingdom of this world, and therefore we don't have to fight some of these battles. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, acknowledge you, the God of all, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And Lord, I know we'll wrestle with some of these things. Help us, Father, to sort them out and recognize, the oh Lord, that you're the one that establishes people in authority. And give us the grace, O Lord, to do what we need to do to bring about positive change, even especially if we're ones in authority. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.